Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joanne O'Connell, author of The Life and Songs of Stephen Foster. Joanne O'Connell, author of The Life and Songs of Stephen Foster, says on the back of the book that this is a revisionist biography. What makes it a revisionist biography? Well, I believe that um, many people have an opinion of him that um, is not actually the way, the way it is. And there's certain ideas that people have about him, which I'm trying to um, overturn. I think that I did with the studies that I've done. And um, <clears throat> some of the ideas about his politics, about his life, um, and about what he did towards the end of his life with the type of music that he wrote. And I think that the main uh, revisionism that I did was to reconsider the music that he wrote later in life when he was in New York. And um, because, of course, he comes from Pittsburgh. He lives in that area. He, he grew up there. But he did move to New York. And many of the, um, the historiography about Foster is simply that after he moved to New York, he um, uh, drank, and he was depressed, and he was alone. And he, didn't, he lost his muse. His songs weren't any good. But what I've believe that I've shown is that he was writing a new type of music because the world had changed. We were into the Civil War. People wanted a different music, and they didn't want the music that was the antebellum music. And the antebellum music any more than the 1960s music were different than the 1950s, and the 1860s music were different than the 1850s, and there was a, there was a change. And he was, um, he was a, a composer for the people, and he wrote what they wanted. And the songs served a purpose, and um, he gave them the right type of music for the times. Are any of his later songs remembered today? Um, Beautiful Dreamer was written later. That's about the only one. He wrote um, some wonderful songs uh, that were recorded, but um, they're not really they're not really known and they're not really considered. He did write many songs, of course, in New York that really aren't known, but the, the songs that I found so delightful were the ones that were clearly made for the variety stages and the vaudeville, which led into vaudeville. And the man who was the, um, the father of vaudeville, which is Tony Pastor, Stephen Foster did write a song for him, and that is known, that's documented. But I believe that he wrote many more songs um, for the all the different the music halls because the um, minstrel um, theaters were actually losing fashion. The Civil War soldiers were in New York, and when they were in New York, they didn't want us to come and see minstrel shows. They wanted to see the variety performances, which actually had young women on the stage. And in the minstrel shows, you had if there were uh, was going to be a female part, there would be a man dressed up like that. So um, the women in the variety uh, 
the, the concert saloons and the music halls. They wore some revealing clothing. The soldiers were going to stand in line and they were going to come there and they're going to buy drinks and they were going to enjoy it. It was a new type of music. It was an upbeat music. It was, it was um, completely different. And Foster went along with that and he wrote that type of music. And uh, he changed. The phrase, you used the phrase concert saloon. Can you describe what going that experience um, would have been like? Yeah, a concert saloon is considered the first place um, that led to vaudeville and it led to eventually musical theater and all this. And a concert saloon would have, um, they had seating, there was a bar, there was a stage. And I think I have a picture um, in, I have a picture in the book. The picture shows the women with long dresses. Usually, um, supposedly, they wore short dresses and high red boots, and they would serve alcohol, um, and, the, and they would put on a different type of show. It would be one, it was a variety act. It was one act after another act after another. And um, if there was going to be a, a minstrel act, it would just be one act, that was it. But there were ballerinas and there were um, jugglers and they were, um, you know, all, all the people that we think of as variety um, performances that, you know, it went on and, and uh, the problem was the, um, there was a moral and an ethic code and they began to believe that uh, some of the girls that worked at, in the uh, concert saloons were prostitutes or prostituting themselves. And um, they made some laws around 1862 um, that you could not sell liquor in the same in the same room where the performances were, and um, but some people got around it, and um, some people got rid of the wait. The, they called them the waiter, waiter girls. Um, some people built a wall up to separate um, the alcohol from the show, and um, some people just let people sing without having. Um, any alcohol, but that probably didn't work well. But in the end, the law was avoided and uh, people went on with the concert saloons. And, um, and I believe that Stephen Foster um, probably, they were right next to all his publishers and I'm sure that he was at this point of his life um, offering his songs to anyone who was gonna buy them. And I'm sure he went to these concert saloons or variety halls, if you want to call them, or music halls, where they got a little upgraded. Some of them were on the Bowery, some were on the Broadway. Broadway, they were fancier, they were, you know, a little bit nicer. And um, they, they performed, you know, they, they performed that type of music, gave them a chance to have it performed by a, a professional, a semi-professional, and there would be a piano there, and um, he could hear them. and. Um, once they were performed, then the publishers would want to buy them too. It, was, it kind of worked, you know, hand in hand because um, he, he no longer at this time in his life had the regular relationship with the publisher who was giving royalties, which he had when he was um, a little bit younger before. How did that work? Royal. How did he make his living with the, through the publishers? Uh, well, originally, he, um, when he was young, he signed a contract. His main publisher was Firth and Pond, and um, he signed a contract with them, and he did get royalties. And this was a wonderful thing because it was actually very new. It was about 1837 when they even started to give the royalties and songs. But he only collected royalties if they sold sheet music. And if a performer went out and, and, and performed his songs like the minstrels, they um, they didn't have to pay him anything for that. So um, he was better off um, 
just you know pr you know s selling song sheets and he did very he did well with that the problem was um, he renewed his um, contract several times and um, but by 1860 when it was up for probably a third fourth renewal on the contract um, they didn't renew it with him he was he um, he was doing well. He suffered personal tragedies, and his parents died, um, and other deaths in his family. And um, he didn't. He wasn't really able to to write anymore. So, at that time, and then um, the greatest tragedy: he lost his home again. Um, he was living in a house um, in Allegheny, which was north across the river from Pittsburgh and um, his brother who was his his half brother he's not half brother excuse me it was just an adopted son he was the oldest brother in the family um, and they called him um, you know he, he was brother William but he was very um, very successful and he bought the house and the whole family lived in it he supported them he became vice president of the railroad he went with all of the people in the very upper echelons of society, this brother. And um, he provided for them. He felt, I think, an obligation that, you know, they had, he had, they had taken him in when he was about eight years old and adopted him. He may have been related to the Fosters. There's, you know, discussions that he was related to them. And, um, but in around, it was 1857, um, he wasn't writing very much. He was very depressed, I guess, after the, you know, loss in the family. And then there was a great, um, there was a big recession. I've, I've done a lot of research into the history of, the, you know, the, the area and the times. And um, the 1857 uh, depression, or panic, as they call it, was, was really based on a lot of overbuilding and railroads. And his brother, being vice president, would have known this. Of the Pennsylvania so, Railroad. Yeah. So he decided that he was going to sell the house. He also wasn't too well. He sent a letter to one of the brothers saying he had a weak uh, left lung. He may have had tuberculosis coming. We don't really know. And um, anyway, so he, he sold the house that Stephen Foster lived in. And by this time, he was living there with his wife, and he had a daughter. And um, his brother was there. There were some other people with him, uh, but he... Uh, is they they just sold the house and um, and he was went on to living in boarding houses and rooming houses and uh, he didn't make a lot of money from his songwriting when he was making money when he was able to produce it seems he had to produce about 12 songs a year and then when after 1855 I think he was producing like five or six but I do have questions about it myself. I mean, it, with all the songs were was sold, and I mean, was he being ripped off by the by the publishers? Were you able to figure out whether they were being honest with him or not? I I don't I don't really know. I mean, I I don't know. They all they said was he took advances when he went when he couldn't produce. He was borrowing money from relatives. He would ask the he would ask the publishers for an advance on this and that and a new song coming out and. Um, a lot of things were happening. I, I, I think that the songs that he, he had originally written, weren't, they were losing popularity. He had to, to go on and to write a different type of song. Um, By the time 
he was writing these show tunes, was he just another songwriter? I mean, he had been a pretty big star earlier. Did his star kind of fade, or was he still a big Stephen Foster song when it would come out? People knew his songs. They didn't seem to know him or his name. Um, they seemed to know his songs. They also knew the name of the, um, the, the mu sheet music was published with the name of the, um, of the performer on the cover. And he was, his name was there as composer, but um, the, the, com the, uh, the uh, performer seemed to be making a lot, a lot more money. Oh, did the performer get paid? Like you mentioned uh, uh, Christie, one of well, the Well, yeah, yeah. Um, the well, the performer made his money as a performer from selling tickets, and that's, that's when he made his money. And he mm. didn't really pay Stephen um, anything other than maybe 10 or $15, and he'd say he was going to use the song. But, but Stephen Foster, by, by performing it, he made it famous to have a star out there performing it. Um, so, so then he could, the publisher would sell more sheet music and then he would get more, um, he, he would end up with more money from royalties. The thing is, he stopped writing the minstrel songs and he stopped writing um, the plantation songs because, um, and this is interesting and part of what I would say was my revisionist theory because um, people, would think of him, were the songs racist? What, what were they? And um, naturally, certain of the songs use certain words that you know, we consider racist. The whole society was racist. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, a, and a lot of people have done, um, tried try to investigate, you know, why would they, why would they write these, these types of songs? But um, Foster was very interesting. When he wrote the songs that were his greatest plantation songs, and Christie did perform them, um, Edwin Christie was a, a minstrel performer, but he was what they called the refined performer. And um, Stephen Foster wrote um, the songs that were the state form of, uh, song of Florida and the state song of Kentucky and um, some others. The, one of the, he's considered his greatest songs. From 1851, let's say, um, to 1853, and January 1853 was my old Kentucky home. Um, but these are the same years. Um, he went to he went to Cincinnati. He lived in Cincinnati, and he worked as a bookkeeper there for his brother, one of his brothers. And um, the question was: uh, some other historians have written, "Oh, what did he learn when he went to? He learned about arts and music, and you know, and the culture, the great culture in Cincinnati." But really, I believe he learned all about anti-slavery. His parents were, um, and his brother, they were very conservative Democrats. Now, Democrats and Republicans are, are two different things, you know. The Democrats, and the Republicans were the first Republican, you know, was Abraham Lincoln, the first president. But um, we tend to think his, his family were Democrats, but in the sense of conservative Democrats. And um, Republican was, was the other party. So he, he had to be very devoted. Um, to he wasn't, but the family was very devoted to the Democratic Party. Now, when he started to write, he came back from Cincinnati, where he heard all about anti-slavery. He made friends with editors who were um, they worked for the um, Cincinnati Gazette, the Cincinnati Chronicle, and he wrote to his brother Morrison, who was a conservative pro-slavery Democrat, and he said, "Oh, I'm I'm talking to these guys, and they're the greatest literary people in." all that, but I did some research, and these particular editors that he was friends with, um, uh, Mansfield was one of them, and um, 
Skip my mind right now. The other one, but he. These people were Republicans. They later joined the Republican Party, and they um, were all for um, um, Abraham Lincoln, and they were. Some of them worked with Lincoln later on, and um, all the newspapers that Stephen Foster was reading. Really, those papers were all anti-slavery papers in Cincinnati, and his brother didn't know this. So I think he was influenced by anti-slavery. It, when he was there. Well, you're right in here. There's a time when there's a change in Foster's moral compass. It's apparent for the first time with Nellie was a lady. And as this song, Foster made a true departure from his insensitive characterization of blacks in his earlier minstrel songs to compositions that carried messages of sympathy. Right. So he did minstrel songs that portrayed blacks in a favorable light? Um, his first songs, he was very young. He was living in Allegheny. He was a teenager. They used to sit in the parlor and the women and the men and they would, the women would sing and the men, you know, and they'd play the piano and everything. And the first songs he wrote, Oh Susanna, I mean there's certain words in there, there's certain expressions, there's discussions of African Americans that we find very offensive. And, um, and, and this, but this was popular, this was what he, he was writing. Then he went to Cincinnati and um, he saw free blacks there, they were working, they weren't slaves. Um, he listened to people talking. It was, you know, the, you know, the slave state was right across the river. He, he was hearing about this. He could never talk about this at his home. And um, he wrote, the first one that was different was he did write Nellie Was a Lady. And Nellie Was a Lady, um, I call these songs, um, I call them sentimental minstrelsy. Now that's my terminology for it. There's minstrel songs which are faster, they're more raucous, they were cruder, they were funny, whatever. If you want to say funny, they were negative. And then um, you have uh, the parlor songs that he wrote. And those were the songs for the, the piano girls, for the young women to play. And they were higher quality as far as musically. Um, and you need a higher skill level to perform them and all this. And what he did was, he, he was a very conflicted man. He was uh, drawn to the minstrel tradition. It was very popular. All the young people were, you know, listening to this kind of music. That was for the young people. And yet his family, he wanted to be respectable, so he wrote the parlor songs, which was very refined, sentimental music. Well, he combined the two, the parlor songs and the minstrel songs, and he made what are called, you know, the words are so interchangeable, the plantation songs, but I preferred to call them sentimental minstrelsy because they're still the minstrel in the sense that they're about, the, the background of they're talking about cotton, they're, they might use um, dialect, African-American dialect in them, um, the South is the background for them. But um, one thing he did, he started to write these um, in Cincinnati. And like with Nellie, Nellie was a lady, he said that there was a great strong, at the time, a feeling about um, music that moved the heart. This was so, so important. If you could bring a tear to the eye, this uplifted you morally, this showed you were a better person, and people really believed you could do something that way. So, so um, when Nellie was a lady, he has a story of a, a black man who's grieving for his wife. She has died, 
and bereavement was a big thing. Everybody, you know, some of the illnesses, deaths, you know, whatever. So, um, so he, he says, Nellie was a lady last night. She died, told the bell for lovely Nell, my dark Virginia bride. First of all, slaves couldn't marry in those days. And yet he talks about a, a bride and there's an honor. And people listening to the, uh, and, and uh, he, he's a decent man. He's taking care of, um, he, you know, he's grieving for his wife. And people watching this being performed on the stage um, will have sympathy for this man. They won't laugh at him. They won't scorn him. They will show that he is a man. He has feeling, just like everyone else. And if you have feeling, in, then you're, you're a human, which a lot of the um, people looking for racial differences, um, you know, will we'll try to say, uh, well, this group of people don't really have the feeling. These people are, are not as human. Um, there was a, a lot of, it was called scientific racism. It was horrible. It was going on in the 1840s. There were people in Europe. There were people in America. They were giving lectures. They came to Pittsburgh and gave lectures. They went to the South Carolina. And they said that um, the races were different. They had studied, one man studied uh, the skulls of different races. He said, you know, there's the, you know, the white people, the Anglos on here, and then the African-American, the Africans down here, and then the Chinese here, Asian here, excuse me, and, and all this. And, and they were considered, these were educated people giving these lectures, and there were people listening. Well, then when Stephen Foster wrote a song that, that portrayed African-Americans <coughs> in a sympathetic mm -hmm. light, how was that received by the audience? Well, what happened was when he was in Cincinnati, and it was um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, lived in Cincinnati the exact same time Stephen Foster did. And she left, she lived there many years before, but she left the same, she left the same year he left. And, he, and she moved up north. And there was a man named Alexander Kinmott who was, came up with something called a theory of race. They were all trying to discuss race theories, romantic racialism. And Harry Beecher Stowe was very affected by this. And what they said was yes, the races are different, somewhat, but the African race really has more virtue. They have some of the qualities of Christians have, and they have obedience, which they, these are not something that the, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe the American, a white person was going to admire necessarily, but he said, they have, we should have sympathy for these people. These people are better in their soul than, than an average white person. They're, they're, and, and they should not, um, should we hurt these people? I mean, Emerson even you know, spoke about it um, in, in the, up in Concord in Massachusetts. They were talking about this. So romantic racialism was a theory of race, but it actually said the qualities African-Americans have are actually in some ways more Christian and superior to the qualities that a white person might have who is ambitious and aggressive and you know pushing people down and so you, so I think that when the, during that time period and what's interesting is is um, Stephen Foster wrote his songs the exact same time his great plantation songs the sentimental minstrelsy the the um, my old Kentucky home and old folks at old folks at home and um, oh boys, carry me long. He wrote all these songs the same year Harry Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when he, after he wrote Nellie was, was a Lady, when he was in Cincinnati, um, he met his his wife, 
Jamie Dowell. She was a Pittsburgh girl. She went to Cincinnati so that um, probably to get a husband, but she traveled and she and she and he was courting her there. And then when she went back, um, she went back to Pittsburgh before he did. Her father died. Her father was a doctor there, physician, and uh, she went back home. There's like five sisters, and he followed her back around. First, he signed his contracts um, with the Firth and Pond. It was the first time he, you know, became, they felt like he was a man now. He, he had a business. He could really write songs. He could sell them. He signed up with publishers. And he went back and he married her. And she was very interesting because um, she has been portrayed years ago. I mean, there were old movies from the 30s, the 40s when they wrote about her. First of all, they said she was a southerner and she wasn't. She was a Pittsburgh girl. And they said she was this horrible woman. She was so cruel and um, heartless. But the truth was, her father was a doctor. Her father was, um, had trained, Martin Delaney, the abolitionist, trained him to be a doctor. And he went to Harvard Medical School after being trained by um, Jane's father. Uh, and when he went, he went to Harvard. But Martin was Delaney a, was African-American? Yes, African-American. Um, he actually led the uh, the first recruits uh, for black soldiers that um, Lincoln signed him up, and um, but he did go to Harvard. But he had he they threw him out. The the people those other medical students said we don't want an African American here. So they he he left. He came back. But anyway, he was he came back when he, when he after he after he married her and she was you know a very different opinion than his family. Um, he, he befriended, he moved back to Allegheny with his, his mother and his father and the brothers and sisters and the whole thing. And right in Allegheny, um, his, which is north of Pittsburgh, his, there was a, um, a man named Charles Shiras, who's a young guy, same age as Stephen, um, one of the friends. And he was uh, an abolitionist. And he also, he wrote, he had newspapers that he published. He wrote uh, books, uh, published poems for anti-slavery poems. He wrote um, the Bloodhound Song, which was 1850, the poem, which was 1850 when they had the Fugitive Slave Act. He wrote poems for laborers, you know, that the people should have rights. So, so Stephen Foster used to go to his house every day and work on the songs that he wrote. And the songs are, if you read through them, the songs that of course, people say, well, they're racist because of certain words that he used, but um, they, were, they, they clearly had an anti-slavery message. And, um, and that's the revisionist that, view well, yeah, that you would like to yes, portray yeah, Stephen yeah, Foster? Yes, because um, Stephen Foster's brother, Morrison, who was a, uh, like, he was a northerner, but he was what they called, the, you know, a copperhead. And, Southern um, sympathizer. Yeah. So, yeah. And, um, and his yeah. sister married the brother of President James Buchanan. Yes, yes, and that's very important too because the problem with that was um, James Buchanan is considered like the worst president um, we had, and uh, and um, and was thought to be yeah, a Southern sympathizer. Yeah, yeah, and um, they they were very connected though. A lot of all the money that that they had, they would get political. The father was the mayor. He did become mayor at one time. He lost all his money. He was sort of hapless man. I mean, it was like he tried very hard, but he, he, you know, he couldn't take care of the family. And there was a, but he did go go about and and work the political 
background to say, would you give an appointment to this nephew, give an appointment to that nephew, get, and that was so they, they, they wanted to stay on good terms um, with him. And so, so Stephen Foster wrote a campaign song for James right, Buchanan. Right, um, and going back, though, I want to mention that before about, about these, these famous songs that my old Kentucky home um, was, no, it is known, now this isn't my revision, but this is, it is known that if they look in, in his manuscript book where he used to write out his songs, it was originally um, Uncle Tom. It was, it was an Uncle Tom's song. It was written for Uncle Tom's Cabin. It came out the same year, or you know, as when he wrote it. And that was why he, he, but then he changed the, the title of it, but it's the whole story is Sympathy for the Slaves. And there's a song that um, Old Boys carries, Carry Me Long that he wrote. Now, I was researching, this was years ago, Jamaican songs, Jamaican slave songs. This was when I was a student many, many years ago. But they, there was a song that, was, um, that I came across, and um, it was Carry Him, Old Boys, it was Carry Him Long. And it was actually an anti-slavery song. It was published around 1834 because in London they got rid of in Great Britain they got rid of the slavery in Jamaica around 1833 was the year. So this was um, one of those. This was a song 1833, 1834, and this was published. And I believe that the, it's the same storyline as "Oh Boys Carry Me Along." So it just shows me that a lot of the um, the biographers and a lot of people that wrote, oh, he wrote that song about his father. It was really, but his father um, uh, hadn't even died yet when he wrote that song. And it was, it's about the burial of a slave. And in the Jamaican song, you're taking this slave down and they're gonna, he's dying, he's sick, and they're gonna leave him down. By, he's, and the slave's yelling out. It's like two people singing this, and the slave's going, don't, um, don't bury me, Master. I'm I'm not dead yet. You know, I'm not dead yet. And Stephen Foster, I think he 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 borrowed from that song and he changed it. But he said there's a lot more ages. He said, "Carry me, you know, carry me along, carry me till I die." And at least he's still saying basically the same thing. But just wait till I die. Don't bury me. So, but these are examples that I see that he was very clearly anti-slavery at this time in his life, and he's working with this Charles Shiras. And I think that that's been forgotten. And no one really, you know, talked about it that much. So, yeah. Well, well for people who are not <coughs> entirely clear on Stephen Foster, we were talking beforehand. Mm -hmm. You said that most people think he was a Southerner. Mm -hmm. He was a Pittsburgher. Mm -hmm. Can you tell a little bit about his background? Yeah, um, his father was. Um, they're Scots Irish. They came over around. Um, 1725, the family did the Fosters, and they went up through Philadelphia, and then they kept going, you know, west. And um, he he was actually they went down to Virginia. I think the father was born in Virginia. Then he he moved up. He went up. Uh, uh, then he was I think he was in Washington's um, Washington, PA, and then he went on north to Pittsburgh. It was around 20. And the mother um, and and they were the, the mother's family, the Claylands. She came over from England. She was Episcopalian, her family, and um, they came over earlier, around 1680 or something like this. And but her family actually settled in Philadelphia. It was Philadelphia and in eastern Mar Eastern Shore of Maryland, and they did have slave owners in her family. And she was, you know, Eliza was always well, the wealthy slave owners in my family, you know. But uh, 
without giving it a moral question, I think, but she was you know, very conscious of being refined and um, what, she, what she thought was you know, well-to-do and all this. You mentioned you that uh, uh, Stephen Foster's father raised money or provided supplies for Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in yes, the War of 1812? Yes, he did. He, um, he was wealthy at the time. He, he, um, he, he came to, he, 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 first of all, he, used to, he lived in Pittsburgh and he was with a, in partnership with one, of, I think it was the first mayor here. And then his job was going down, he used to go down the river and um, they used to sell things like whiskey and furs and he went all the way down to New Orleans. And then they went around and around Florida and then they went back up. Um, they, they exchanged it in New Orleans for like slave-produced products, which they, they would get, and then they'd bring those up, and then he would you know, get them up and towards the Philadelphia on the ship, and then sometimes he, I don't know, he walked back. I mean, there were different things. I mean, how he got back, it was very difficult. He had armed men going, you know, carry, and he would take, take things. Some of the men would, you know, they had their carriages, I guess, and they would go back and carry goods back. So, yeah, he, he, he was... Um, you know, one of like an early an early settler, and what? she was more. She came, uh, I think, was well. They were all educated, though. His father started. They um, the Jefferson College in Cannesburg. They they. I mean, the, and the family was. Um, there were ministers in the family, and they were um, presidents of colleges. I mean, they were all educated people. But uh, Foster's, oh yeah, you mentioned, you asked about Andrew Jackson. Sorry, yeah. Oh, well, that's okay. Yeah, I yeah, want to ask yeah, about the family. Yeah. What, since you're talking about the family being educated, <laughs> what did the family think of Stephen Foster? Did they think, well, we have this celebrity in the family, or did they think, well, here's a guy who can't get a real job? Oh, I think his songs were known. No, they they knew he didn't make money. They were. Um, they were very, very worried. The whole family worried about him. He didn't go into business like the others. The uh, father sent him to several schools, and um, they turned every. They, first of all, the father um, really had law. Anyway, he, he did use his own money to supply a ship that went down to to help Andrew Jackson, and then. Um, he was the commissary. He, he asked other people, the manufacturers in Pittsburgh, to donate the goods, and they said, no, I want your personal signature, and he gave it. And then for years, he went back, and he, um, he tried to get his money back, but he couldn't. The thing is, he was really, um, wasn't only whether you say he was a bad businessman, or was he too generous, or, um, there was a great, there was so many, um, in, in this time in history, there was no safety nets, and there were so many recessions, and it was a real roller coaster, you know. The, so after the after the war, um, the 1812 war, um, the uh, the economy around 1819, it just it flattened out. It was a, ter it was a very very bad time, and everything was. Stephen Foster's father used to like to invest in land. He was buying and selling land, and he was you know flipping houses, as we would say nowadays, and um, then. Economy went, and, he, and he, you know, he really, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything. And um, so, the, he, yeah. Stephen Foster did not grow up wealthy. No, the thing was, the great tragedy, I guess, of his life was, um, it was really uh, when he was born. The house, the father, um, bought a, a farm with 121 acres. He started the whole, he settled it 
it's a little bit east of Pittsburgh, and it's Lawrenceville. And he named it after Captain James Lawrence, who was the sea captain who went down with the ship or something. So he, he named it, he, he, oh, he settled a whole town, is what he did. And uh, he had 10, you know, Eliza gave birth to 10 children. I mean, he was an up and coming man. And then, I don't know, the, the economy, whatever, hit him, and um, they lost the house. The house was foreclosed. Does it still stand? No. Oh, oh yes, the house, the original house does, yes. Does. This house does. It, was, it doesn't look like it used to look. It was bought by a grocer when it was in foreclosure, and the grocer um, had it. And then later it was bought by, I think it was someone from... Um, one of the big industrials, but they totally changed it. And it has it looks more like an 1880s, 18, 1870s house. It doesn't have the same look. They covered it up in brick, and it's different. And I did go and see the house, and uh, they turned it into an apartment building. And I spoke to, I was asking them of the people who lived there, and they, you know, they knew it was Stephen Foster's house, but they were just concerned that they, maybe the rent was a little too high for that. But no, they, they did, yeah. That when, house stands. When did people start noticing that Stephen Foster had some musical ability? I think his, his parents knew it. Um, they took him down when he was like seven years old, supposedly. There's a story that he went down to a music store. I think his mother took him down and uh, he picked up, you know, he, was, he could just play something automatically. But they gave him a flute. The mother bought a flute for him. Um, the sisters all played the piano. And the sisters were trained. They played the piano. They played the guitar. Um, Eliza was very conscious of that, and um, he heard all of this. I think his it was his sister Henrietta who probably gave him most of his lessons, and then later he he studied with a German musician. You know, later on, but um, I think the parents wanted him to go into business. You know, which is the manly thing to do, and he just didn't. Just didn't it didn't work out it didn't work out for him, you know, to be that way. It wasn't in the cards. You him. say here that his first published song was "There's a Good Time Coming." Um, but was it what what style was it in? Was it popular? Did he make any money off of it? Um, I don't think I don't think this this might have been um, I don't remember, but I, I think this this might this was not one of the this might have been just someone who. Who published it or something? What, what year was? I mean, I, I think this was when he was very young. Um, 1846. Oh, this was the one with Peters. Yeah. Is this Peters? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't think with his first contracts for publishing, right? Um, with Peters, W. C. Peters, W. C. Peters actually gave music lessons to the Foster children years before, and then he went on. He opened all these businesses. Um, in Cincinnati and in Kentucky, um, he opened music businesses. But um, no, he didn't make any money on these on those songs. When did he um, start to really Peters make money at it? Never really, really made money. I mean, he, he never really made money. Um, when he signed with Firth and Pond, I think he started to, there was a time when he probably, he claims he made about 1400 He claimed about 1400 a year. And I think when they go back over the 10-year period when he was with Firth Pond, that they averaged out, I think it's about, now 1,400, of course, um, you can multiply that maybe, you know, 50, 60 times now. So he was, there were certain times in his life when he did make money, but um, he, he didn't produce enough. 
and they didn't renew his contracts. And the problem was in 1857, um, after the brother sold the house and he was homeless, and the, he, he was very desperate and he sold all the royalties for a cash advance. And it was, well, and he thought he could live on it maybe a year, but he it was about, he didn't even live on it a year. And his, his life radically changed and uh, was, he just, there was no one there really for him to, him to depend on. When was it at the peak of his fame? Um, I think he, he himself, I don't think he, he himself wasn't so, his songs were known. So and, people weren't waiting for the latest Stephen Foster song? Um, I think the publishers promoted him that way, but uh, it seems that people didn't, they didn't recognize him, they didn't really know him, and there was a very sad thing when someone, um, someone from Cincinnati, I think one of the editors, wrote to him and sent a, you know, a little newspaper clipping or something they had written up about him, and he, and um, they said that the so his songs were being sung all over the world. And Stephen Foster wrote to him and said, well, thank you, I'll send this on to my publishers, It'll, they'll like to have it. And a man just doesn't, as long as, is, it, it wouldn't mean anything to me except that I now have something I can show my wife. Because here there was the irony, he couldn't make enough money to support his wife and one child, and yet his songs were sung all over the world. He, he just wasn't really protected. First of all, the copyright would have only been the United States. There didn't have any copyright elsewhere. But people were just taking his songs and publishing them in anthologies, and he didn't really, it was just so much going on that wasn't, wasn't right. I don't know if, they, if anything could have been done about it, but uh, he, he clearly didn't make the money. He, he, is, he is the first man to try to make a living and to succeed as a professional composer. Most people made their money as um, a performer. They go out and sell tickets or something like that. But um, to actually, or a, a you know, performer or a stage person or something, but, or a publisher, the publisher made money. But to actually compose the songs and to make his living solely that way, um, he was the first one who did that. And he did succeed for a while. He never did any performing? No. It's not a performer. I, I, I mean, sometimes there was some story that he was invited to a party and he played something. It was just because. No, I mean, I think he would, um, later in life when he moved to New York, he was going to the concert saloons. There were stories that he would get up and he would sing. He was quite drunk and he would sing Hard Times Come Again No More, which was um, very, you know, very popular and very close to his own heart. And um, he, when he went to New York, um, his wife went with him at first, um, but he uh, eventually, you know, she left. She couldn't, it wasn't, she just couldn't live there anymore, you know, with him. Um, he also, one thing I wrote about, which I think was interesting, was that he, there were different types of music besides, he, he gave up the minstrel music. Um, he actually stopped writing the plantation songs that were so popular that you say did, where he was making money on. Um, oh, in 1853, um, uh, that was the last one that he wrote. He didn't ever go back to them thinking, you know, I got to make a buck here. 
He went back when he moved to New York. Um, he wrote the Glendy Burke, I think, but it was more like a going away, and that's written in dialect, which, and um, then he wrote um, the Shanghai Chicken, which I think was a political song, really, and then he wrote, he wrote Old Black Joe, but the, he, he wrote, they weren't the same. Um, he, first of all, they were written, even Old Black Joe, it's just, it's not written in dialect anymore. He doesn't use any offensive words that the old songs used. They're really just songs that I think the publisher said, um, we, we've got to sell something. Can you can you write something you know for the old style? And I don't think he wanted to, but he he did it. Um, and uh, I don't even think people people didn't really people didn't really want those songs anymore. Anyway, it was very hard to sell anything when the war, Civil War first started. And then he started to, um, in 18, uh, he started to write Civil War songs. And I think these were wonderful songs. He wrote, uh, Was My Brother in the Battle? And these were beautiful songs. And he started to write songs that he dedicated um, to Abraham Lincoln. And in the meantime, his brother, Morrison, that he was so close to, you know, when they were growing up, they were closer in age. Um, his brother, Morrison, got married and left Pittsburgh. Um, his brother Morrison was in the cotton business. Now, a lot of people don't realize that cotton industry was big in Pittsburgh. We always think of steel and iron, but it was cotton industry was big. And his brother worked, used to go down south and he used to buy the cotton and bring it back. And they had cotton mills in Pittsburgh. And there were riots because the girls there in the cotton mills wanted, you know, the eight hour day and they wanted more money and all this. Well, eventually, the Pittsburgh uh, cotton industry went out of business, and then Morrison didn't have a job, and he's very pro-Southern. And then he married a woman who used to sing Stephen Foster's songs, Jessie Leitner, but she was, um, she was a Pittsburgher, but her family were Southerners. And they moved up to Cleveland, and he became a, um, uh, he was supposed to go into an iron business, but I think he was just involved with politics, and he, he, he got very involved with, um, Valandigam, who was um, the head of the Copperheads. And the Copperheads are the group of people, um, they're Democrats, they're Northerners, but they're, they were against Abraham Lincoln, and they, were, they wanted peace. They, some people called them, you know, that they, 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 they wanted peace, but they really wanted to, they would give in anything to the South, um, and anything, and they, and they really, I think they were really quite dangerous, much more dangerous than a lot of historians credit them. You but think Stephen Foster wrote the, the, the Abraham Lincoln songs, the songs he dedicated Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War songs to, to make money, or did he really believe in the cause? Did you get any sense for that? Um, I, I definitely think he believed, I think that he did believe in the cause at this point. He had many opportunities. His brother wanted him to, um, his, his brother, wanted him to move, they asked him to, you know, to, he was living on the Bowery, it's a terrible situation, and they asked him to move to Cleveland, and there's no way, he was not gonna go and live and live with them, and, and all there, and then his sister Henrietta, whose husband was in the Union Army, she went up there and they were writing these horrible, Stephen Foster was writing these songs that said, join the army, fight for, fight this war, save the Union, and Stephen Foster's sister and his sister-in-law, um, Jesse, they were writing poems that said, um, let's make peace quickly. Um, Abraham Lincoln's a tyrant. 
and um, let's, um, uh, you, you know, they, they, they just, they, they were saying, don't fight the war. They were peace advocates. And um, she, I think Henrietta took one of his songs that he wrote, it was all about generals, um, the generals trying to fight to save the Union, and she took that song, the music, and she put her own words to it and said just the opposite of what he said. But he, he chose, I think, to stay alone in New York because he did not want to go back and live with, and live with those people. And um, I, mean, I mean, everything he did, he, he was a close friend with an abolitionist. It's true he wrote the song for, um, the campaign song for Buchanan, but there was a lot of pressure. His abolitionist friend died, anyway, at 30 years old. And you say, interrupt you for just a second, you say that um, even though he wrote these songs, two of them were state songs for the southern states and Swanee River and all that, that he never traveled in the south. Well, first of all, those, they, they weren't, they became state songs in 1928, 1935. I mean, they weren't state songs. No, he never traveled in the South. Um, he went down a couple of river cruises. Um, we don't really know that he even went to Bardstown, where they claim that he went. His sister, um, Charlotte, I just love Charlotte, um, went to Bardstown. Where's Bardstown? Bardstown is about, it's in Kentucky, but it's in, you know, about 60 miles, I think, maybe. It's near Louisville, but it's, um, she went there and she visited relatives of the fathers in Louisville, and, and then she went to my old, which is my old Kentucky home, which is Federal Hill, and, it, and she was uh, 19. They sent her down there, you know, to, you know, to find a husband, really. That was what she was sent there for, and she dazzled everyone. She was the piano girl. Um, she could play the piano and the harp and sing and do anything. And yet um, they hoped she would find a husband. And she did get a marriage proposal. I think it was from Atkinson Hill Rowan, who was the owner. He was 25 years old. He was the lawyer. He was the son of the judge who owned the Mayo Kentucky home. But she turned him down. And she wrote a letter. And we have all the letters, because I went through. It's like 500, there's all the letters that the family wrote and the beautiful letters that Charlotte wrote. And she, she wrote a letter to her mother. I, I, I just can't, you know, I'm not in love with him. I can't, I can't marry this man. So and you went through a lot of letters, but you I also said that Stephen Foster's brother burned a lot of his papers yeah, after he died. Yeah, the letters are the family letters. All his letters, there's hardly any of his letters, just cute letters. Oh, I was, you know, taking a walk here, I did this. No, there's, there's really, there's so much as far as documents, but it's family letters, um, and it's, it's not anything of his. And the only way, I think, to understand him, for me, because I, I wanted very much to find out who he was, why he wrote the songs, because I, mean, I think his, his sentimental minstrel songs are clearly different than other minstrel songs, and his message is clearly different in those songs. Um, so I, I had to research the history of Pittsburgh and um, history of the nation and what and Cincinnati and what was going on of the times. And um, then for New York, there was nothing. There's nothing about him, and there's really nothing even written about what his life was like in New York. And I researched, um, it was more theater history that I did, um, that he was, 
I think that, you know, there's always a tendency to, to limit him and to say, oh, he wrote minstrel songs, that's it. But he didn't. He, he wrote very few, few, a very small percent of all his songs were in, in the minstrel tradition. And he changed. When they became, there's a, historians have said uh, that from 1853, 1854 on, on the, the, the minstrelsy changed and it was not sympathetic to African-Americans because in 1854 was the Kansas-Nebraska Act and there was fighting going on and, and a lot of the people were very angry though. Is my nation, is the nation going to break up? Is there going to be a big war? What's going to happen? And they said um, instead of blaming slavery, they said we'll blame the slaves. So all the minstrel shows became very negative and Stephen Foster did not, um, he stopped writing at that time. He didn't write anymore songs and like I said he he wrote some later in 1860 but they were they, they weren't really minstrel songs anymore they were just songs. Did you gradually like him more and more as you did the research or did you start off with knowing you wanted this uh, revisionist opinion of him? Well no, I always liked him I didn't I found him um, he started to feel like he was a brother I mean I have to say this I know the family so well for so many years I no, he seems like a brother and he's he's irritating he can be it, it becomes you know it's upsetting sometimes I feel that he was taken advantage of by everybody he didn't have a backbone he really was a very his his greatest quality I think is, is compassion he was very compassionate for everybody and he wrote songs that were um, all four Americans, he wrote mourning songs. I use that term because the songs were, if a girl died, you know, and then he wrote the song for the family. And um, Gentle Annie was a, a mourning song when a girl died, run over by a horse. And then he wrote the song, Thou Shall Come No More, Gentle Annie, you know. And, and he, he just, uh, so, and, and then he wrote songs for the war to get people to enlist. And then he wrote songs to make people laugh during and the war when he wanted to. You say the genie with the light brown hair, that genie was his wife, Jane? Yes, yes. And he lived in, um, that was, he, he, I called the chapter, he lived in Hoboken very briefly. He had gone to New York and he worked on uh, some music there um, to put a compilation of, of music. And, um, but it was not, Minstrel. It was just parlor music for amateurs to play in their home and everything. And then they didn't give him any royalties, but he felt, I think he was very proud, you know, this book was produced. And, um, and, and then he went out and he rented this huge place in Hoboken. And, and I have a picture of it because I've seen it. I've been there. And um, he, his wife moves in, and, um, but he wasn't he, he's, he wasn't making any money. He's still, I mean, he couldn't really afford it. A lot of stress, and um, he may have lived there about 10 months, so she may have gone back to Pittsburgh before. We don't really know, but eventually he just got up and left, and they went back to Pittsburgh. Does he have any living descendants? I believe he does. Now, I'm not sure who they are exactly. Um, his granddaughter is um, Jesse Welsh, Rose, she married a man named Rose, and um, she, there's pictures of her when she was, I think when they dedicated the, um, the museum down in Florida or something, she was there like, because she lived in 1959, his granddaughter. She married and had, she had a 
a couple of children, either two or three, I'm not sure. And one's name was Stephen Collins Foster Rose. And he lived to 1995. And um, he died, he was in Connecticut. And another one, um, I remember that one's name. Um, also, I think she married Rose, um, she married, um, I guess it was, his name was Dallas. Dallas is a big name also, is Dallas Street in, in, you know, in Pittsburgh and all, but she married into that family. But then there was another child, and that, that child is also buried in uh, that man, the woman, uh, in, um, in Connecticut. And I think there might be one that's buried at Allegheny Cemetery. But so the children of those, of the Stephen Collins Foster wrote, I, I, I don't know where they are or if they are, but they might be in Connecticut, so it would be nice to, to find out you know, what happened, what happened to him. He died down and out in New York City? Yes, he uh, died. Um, he was found, um, he was living in a hotel room on the Bowery, and um, these places, they, there were times, though, he met different people um, who said, one time someone said he was actually living in Five Points, which is the slum, you know, and he was living in a cellar. There was rumors of this. We don't really know. He died. He was living. Um, he didn't have any money. He was asking everybody, could he arrange a song for them? Could he do something to make a little money? How old was he when he died? 37. Hmm. And um, he was found, uh, you know, they say it was an accident. We really don't know. I mean, most people say it was an accident. Um, he was found um, in a pool of blood in his hotel. Um, I think the lobby, not so much the room, and not lobby, but even the hallway, I think he pulled himself out. Um, and he had a bang on his head, and he had a cut in his throat. And uh, the story was they took him to Bellevue Hospital, and he, he, you know, they called the doctor in who sewed up the cut in the throat. And this brought a lot of questions to my mind, hearing about that. And um, of course, there's some people who don't want to hear that, but um, that's how it was. And they, they took him there, and then he died. And he went to Bellevue about three days, and then he died. Well, unfortunately, we, we really just scratched the surface of okay. the story of Stephen mm -hmm. Foster, but we are out of time, okay. and we've been speaking with Joanne O'Connell. She's the author of this book, The Life and Songs of Stephen Foster. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.